Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today's show brings together a ton of Equity Wednesday themes into one episode, so I'm very excited. We're talking about vulnerability, shutdowns, building in public, and on-ramps and off-ramps into this wild choice to be an entrepreneur. So I'm super excited to say that we are talking to Kristen Anderson, the co-founder and CEO of Catch, an app to provide payroll benefits for people who are self-employed. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being on. I'm so glad that you're on. I mean, I think a ton of people have reacted to your choice back in March to shut down your company, Catch. And I want to talk about all of that. But before we get into the the heart of the show, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and really like why in the world you ever wanted to be a founder to begin with. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a hard profession. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And uh, for those who don't know, it was uh, less by choice than maybe most people who enter the industry. So interesting. I had worked in venture back tech for a couple of years. I got hired to lead product at a company that did student debt repayment as an employer-led benefit. And while I was there, I got an email from a guy who wanted to hire me to a startup. And they were about eight people and he wanted to hire me to lead product. There was just enough mystique to really get my attention. And so I actually joined Catch as head of product. Huh. There was a team. There, there was no product. <laughs> there was no customers. You know, it was pre-launch. It was very early days. But I think when you say on-ramps and off-ramps into entrepreneurship, it's really important to know that the classic Silicon Valley founding story is not how a lot of businesses are started, right? They're... You're saying every business is not started in a garage <laughs> over pizza? <laughs> I mean, there are lots of businesses started that way and that's great, right? But there are lots of other ways to do it as well. And, and I actually, what I love about Andrew and I's founding story is that he hired me, right? And we got the opportunity to work together before committing to each other as co-founders. And I think that's super important because a lot of people will be like, well, we met at a meetup and then we shook hands and we're like, we're going to be in business for the next 10 years, right? And like, that's a huge commitment, right? That's a lot of time. You like don't know someone that well. And to be able to form a relationship where like, you know, maybe you have someone that you've worked with for 10 years and you want to start a business. That's great. But if you don't have that, jumping straight to that level of commitment isn't necessarily the way to bypass that like closeness or even like shared vision, right? And so Andrew and I got a chance to work together as, you know, he was the CEO and I was the head of product. After a couple months, I became COO because I was doing a lot more than just product, really helping the company function, you know, across the board. And then after about a year and a half, he just decided he hated the job of being CEO. Wow. He just hated it, right? He was like, I don't want to talk to investors. I don't enjoy (laughs) writing investor updates, you know? And like what had been happening is that I was writing investor updates. You were doing the job slowly and slowly. I was going to ask about part of like an evil, evil maybe is the wrong word, a secret plan. (laughs) Takeover plan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, not not even on your end, just, just you, but like, was it as simple as like, you really just did naturally fall into doing more, more and more leadership? Yeah. You know, people talk a lot about ownership mindset and like what it means mm. to feel like you you own your work. And when you are an owner, you, obviously you want every employee to have an ownership mindset, but <laughs> it's not just a positive thing. Like there's definitely a downside as well, right? Like the downside is that like you hold stress and anxiety over things that like aren't really your your job or your problem. And like the on-ramp to entrepreneurship for me was that I had an ownership mindset in every job that I had. 
every single one. And I didn't know how to not think about things that weren't my job and not, you know, try to help in areas that maybe I didn't know how, but, you know, just like, well, nobody knows how to do this. I'm, you know, as good as anybody, (laughs) as good as nobody, right. At figuring that out. And so for me, like the, the evolution was really just about like taking ownership of things and saying, well, what needs to be done? And for us, it was that like, someone needed to manage investor relationships, someone needed to pitch. And I've told this story so many times that it continues to gain an irony every time I tell it. But Andrew said to me once, my biggest pet peeve is repeating myself, right? (laughs) And I was like, that's what a CEO does. You repeat yourself to investors, to potential hires, to partners, to, you know, people that you're selling your business to, to future employees, you repeat yourself constantly. And so for him, it just like wasn't a very good fit. And when I saw that gap, it was like, well, this is a gap that I can fill. So again, I think it, it also really demystified the CEO role in that like, it's not better. It's not smarter. It's not more talented. It's not anything else. It's just a different job. And that's really what it was for us at Catch is that this is a role that someone needs to fill. Yeah. And I was the right person to do it at that time. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think the conversation has become louder in Silicon Valley, whatever we describe it as today, that maybe the founder isn't going to be the best CEO. And maybe we shouldn't just put all the power into one person, or at least we should question a little bit about what the job role entails. Mm-hmm. That's so specifically, which is like, it's not a better job is interesting to me because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would say like, that is the dream job. If I'm at a company, <laughs> you know, people are vying for it. As CEO, Grass is always greener, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Well, I always say this thing, which is like, you know, if someone's like really stressed about work and they're already a super high performer, I try and remind them like, hey, like this company, you know, this doesn't work for you, but like this company existed before you. It will exist after yeah. you. You will be fine. As a CEO, you can't really tell yourself that. So that makes it, I think, a little bit more difficult, <laughs> so to speak. That's why early stage is fun, though. And I, I think that's the thing that's always mattered to me is that like this conversation about like, should you have to like work 80 hours a week or, right. you know, whatever it is, it's a choice. And like, not everyone should choose that. But like, if you want that, and if you like that environment, if you like the fast pace, the, the fact that like, in the early days, like company does need you. Yeah. And the performance of the company very much can be changed by one person, not just the CEO, but someone in any role. I liked that. I liked that power and that opportunity, right? Even if you don't get it right, right? Again, Catch is a great example of that. But I think that was right for me. And it's not right for a lot of people. And it's fine that it's not right for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, so talk to me about like, you said about one and a half year in is when you took the CEO role. What did you accomplish and really focus on in the, what would then be the next four and a half years? So what was really important to me was to figure out what product market fit was for us. And which is funny looking back because you can say we bungled it in a whole bunch of different ways. But uh, hindsight, always 2020, always better than 2020, right? (laughs) But I think it was important to understand like what it was our customers wanted and to be able to offer them something of value, right? Like we really, and again, I think for all the things that we didn't get right, one thing that I think we really did achieve is that we built something that people valued. And when we shut down, we really heard that, right? We heard that repeatedly from hundreds of customers who were just like, what can we do to keep you alive, right? Can I start sending you $15 a month, right? And so for me, the number one goal was like, let's solve some problems for people. We know this is a huge problem. We know that these people don't have the tools that they need and the access to the financial services that they want. So let's like make something of value. That was number one for me. And that was where I like spent, I would say probably the vast majority of my time year over year over year. The latest iteration of Catch, how are you defining self-employed people and how are you defining what your core product was? Yeah, so we called it personal payroll. That was sort of the, the core mechanism, which is, you know, the idea when you're paid from an employer, 
there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens before money gets into your account, yeah. right? Your taxes are taken out, money goes towards your retirement, your health insurance premiums are paid. Like you as a W-2 employee don't have to think about any of those things. But for folks who work either, you know, full-time freelance or, you know, a variety of different types of work where they might do some side hustle, some freelance, maybe they have a W-2 job as well, right? That world makes it so that those basic things like getting your taxes paid is just like a huge pain, right? And so that was sort of where we focused. Okay. So the definition piece was always tricky because people in the segment that we served self-identified very differently. Yeah. Um, the word self-employed is very center of the country. The word freelance is very coastal. And so like sometimes the same people can just use different words to describe themselves. Is creator like just LA or is creator? Yeah, cre creators are all in LA, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but that, but that is, that actually was part of our challenge is that we, like, we may not have been narrow enough early enough. And we sort of tried to keep the aperture fairly wide because we did want to be able to serve so many different types of folks, right? We had a partnership with DoorDash whose customers looked very different than Square, where we had a partnership, right? And there oh, were sellers. Yeah. And, but Square also has a payroll service where they're working for payroll on food trucks. So the people who work inside of a food truck are very different than a Square seller who's a business owner is very different. You know, So that can be a challenge. But I think it's because this market hasn't really defined itself super clearly. We often said we serve, we serve the spaces that weren't covered by everything else, yeah. right? So like you either get all the benefits you need from your employer or you don't. And so we kind of operated in the negative space around people who were fully served, but it is challenging to have a market that is negative space instead of like a positive definition. Yeah, it's both the challenge, but as I think you put really well, the opportunity. And I love that you still believe in the idea because totally. well, take me to March 6th, which is when you announced yeah. that you were going to shut down Catch and you did so publicly on a Twitter thread that's gotten half a million views. And so... Mm -hmm. Take me to that moment where you decided to write things out and go public with it. Yeah. Well, you know, when you announce publicly, you have known for a little while, right? Because there are people who need to know before the public, right? So the process is basically starting the second half of last year, we're looking for exit opportunities. The market was changing really quickly, really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. Like acquisition went from being super opportunistic at large companies to a frozen IPO market, making all companies who were pre-IPO really, really nervous about making any sort of risk in an investment. And that happened in like a 90-day span, right when we were out looking for that acquisition. So, you know, we actually got verbal offers that never materialized further Whoa. because the market was changing so fast, right? Yeah. We want to buy you for this amount of money. Hooray, hooray. From other, other fintechs? I'll say pre-IPO venture-backed companies. Okay. So there's a couple different types of companies that are interested in catch. Some of them were folks who didn't have financial services capabilities who wanted mm. them. Yeah. Others who did have financial service capabilities and wanted us as sort of like a, you know, a new segment of customer that they wanted to monetize. But yeah, the market was changing so fast that companies that were, you know, looking at the IPO market and, and the public markets and saying like, you know, we, we aren't seeing that we will be rewarded for taking risk right now. Yeah. And that was that was hard because we knew that we had built something of value. Now, how much is always up for debate. <laughs> um, how much and by whom, right? It certainly matters. But I think that was a really, really tough time to be trying to sell the company. And I imagine right now, if you're trying to sell your company, you are running into similar conversations around, you know, boards are nervous right now. Boards are really nervous. They aren't really seeing that they're getting rewarded for taking a lot of bets. And so if you have like really strong and consistent revenue, sure, there's probably an opportunity for you. But if you have that, you probably don't need the acquisition to begin with. Yeah. So 
That's kind of how it works. And and even like taking a step before that, how do you know it was time to be looking for an acquisition? Was it because of the things we talked about, like the change in customer segment and yeah. uneven revenue? Or was it a bunch of things? I'm sure it was a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah, it was a bunch of things. It was a couple bets that didn't work out, right? So there was a program for health insurance that was supposed to run in Georgia last year that the Biden administration pulled last minute. Oh. That was supposed to represent probably three to five million in revenue for us. And it just evaporated overnight. So you know, you quickly try and scramble to cover the gap, but sometimes things like that just make it too hard to come back from and, and trying to raise a series B on the revenue we had was just not going to happen. We knew it wasn't appropriate. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's this question of, can you find a bridge? Can you find other sorts of financing? But I think like there's a belief that founders should do whatever it takes to stay alive. And I am not of the opinion that staying alive is the best outcome for a lot of different companies for a lot of different reasons. We set out to prove a thesis. We made a bunch of wrong choices across acquisition, across products, sequencing, all those sorts of things. Business model, we made tons of mistakes. Every business does. Of course. But at some point, you get to a point where you're like, I'm not sure we can come back from enough of this in a way that will make us compelling. So, you know, I talked to a lot of companies that did A to B bridges. Yeah. I talked to a lot of Series B investors. You know, we talked about selling one of our subsidiaries, right? So we did health insurance and financial services and retirement. We're like, do we sell a subsidiary yeah. to keep us running to then be able to raise the next round? And how much had you raised at that point? We had raised, I think, 19 and a half, just under 20. Okay, wow, yeah. 20 million, yeah. So we had raised a you know a healthy seed, a healthy Series A, but we were taking on three regulated businesses yeah. that like, were fairly capital intensive. And we made decisions in 2019 and 2020 to focus on growth above monetization, yeah. right? Would we have done the same thing in 2023? Probably not, mm -hmm. right? And so I think you're kind of making trade-offs early in the business that makes sense in the environment you're in. That environment changes, changed multiple times, changed from COVID, changed from, you know, interest rates skyrocketing, all sorts of things made those dynamics more difficult for us to manage. And so I talked to a lot of investors about the possibility of doing some sort of, you know, hacking our way into staying alive. Yeah. And at some point, you have to start to assess the opportunity cost for yourself as a founder. And obviously, you want to do right by your investors. Obviously, you want to do right by your board. Obviously, you want to do right by your customers and your employees. But the most valuable thing you have as a, as a human is your time, right? You cannot buy more time. And so I think like being able to have a, a rational look at like, am I going to spend the next three to five years on the verge of like severe mental breakdown just to stay right. alive with something that may not at the end of the day even work out, you know, some of those costs get really high and, and founders have an ownership mindset by default. And I think it's like, it's worth thinking about what those could look like. Now, we also, I should say this, we didn't have any tangible funding offers. It wasn't like someone was like, we'll give you a $3 million bridge. And, and like, we not today. <laughs> right. Like we didn't have that offer on the table, but we, yeah. we did kind of explore some of those options and we didn't see anything that like felt like it would make sense for our business in the long term. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, there's so many threats to pull on there. I think one big one is venture capital's role in yeah. how a founder builds. I know you said that you, it's not like you had an offer that you said no to, but like even if we go back to the 20 million you raised and how that played a role in you choosing growth over monetization, would you point at venture as at all a reason that you face those pressures? Or even like if we're going to broaden it out to how other founders should be thinking about their venture? Because I'm sure yeah. some people didn't want you to shut down yeah. They wanted you to keep yeah, trying. Yeah, and if they had given us a lot of money, then maybe we wouldn't have, right? <laughs> right. That was the thing. We didn't want to shut down either. That wasn't yeah. like our preferred path. We would have preferred the funding. But uh, I, um, <laughs> it would be nice right now if I could blame the VCs uh, for the decisions <laughs> that we made. But, you know, as the CEO, those decisions were mine. But I think what the pressure is certainly there to focus on growth. But I don't think that was the primary motivator for me. 
And this is a mistake that I think I made. The reason why we didn't make enough money was not that we sacrificed entirely for growth. It was that I wanted our product to serve every segment. I wanted our product to serve dashers who weren't going to pay a SaaS fee for it. From a mission perspective, it was important to me. And I think that was a mistake. Not that mission is a mistake, but the mistake was that I was trying to serve everyone at once instead of earning the right to offer the correct freemium product. Mm. We gave away way too much value. Again, that's why when we shut down, people were like, can I start sending you $15 a month? We had a segment that was willing to pay. We didn't have enough team or time to iterate, sort of segment those things, build out different pricing tiers. Uh And that is something that would have helped us, but it may have helped us more to have been a little bit more strategic early on and said, let's serve the higher earning segments here who are willing to pay. Yeah. And let's like get the revenue, let's prove it out. But for me, I was like, no, it's really important that people who don't have access to high quality financial services, get them from us. Right. I still believe that, but from a business perspective, I maybe believe that a little too hard, a little too early without the revenue to back up that decision. Got it. That makes a ton of sense when you say it like that, because I think mission is something we're like thrown at all the time. And I think a lot of employees felt hurt by it when they got laid off after being sold on a mission. And it's both like the North Star, but in some ways, like it can be a distraction if it is so broad and big, which it goes against a lot of like the startup culture excitement that we know. Well, if you can't back it up with a good business, like we are in business and our goal is to make a good business. So I thought it could all work out. And again, we were making bets because we monetized off of health insurance as well. So we were making bets that we could get enough people to use the products we were monetizing off to make the business model make sense. Yes. And the answer is we didn't quite get there and we didn't get there quickly enough. And and some of that was the nature of health insurance. It's a slow moving market. You know, there's a lot of complexity and regulation and stuff like that. So it was a really like complex system that kind of just led us to the point of saying like, we don't have a good path out. We don't have good options. So yeah, anyway, to finish, you know, we were having conversations with our board throughout this entire process, right? They were obviously aware and involved with those conversations. We started to notify a few other investors to kind of get introductions to potential acquirers, things like that. And then at some point you kind of have to make the call and say... Was it a runway thing when you decide, kind of? Yeah. Okay. I mean, and it was, we had a a line of credit, you know, that we could draw down on, but without any sense of what came after that, it was was like, well, what what are we doing for just to stay alive for another six months? And so we ultimately decided like, okay, it's it's time to make the call. So you have to notify your employees. Yeah. (laughs) You have to notify your investors. You have to notify your partners. And, you know, for us, we were a consumer product. So that was ultimately why we went public, you know, in quotes, is that we knew that notifying our customers was basically going public. Yeah. And so what we decided was we didn't want to just send some email that someone was going to screenshot and put on Twitter and everyone would be like, you know, clutching their pearls, what happened, right? We were like, we want to own the narrative. And we sent an email to our customers, but we also wanted to be able to tell the story in our own words so that people who had questions or people who wanted to know what we thought or why it happened had an ability to hear that from us instead of just from people who might want to snark on Twitter about it. Yeah, I mean, and fast forward two months, I would love to know what the positives and negatives were for you going public <laughs> with it. It sounds like the, <laughs> one of the early positives was you started to see who your customers who were willing yeah. to pay that premium was. What, yeah. what else popped up for you? We sold the company. <laughs> oh, wait, why do I feel like I didn't know that? Because no one knows that. It's not closed yet. Oh. It's not been made public. Oh my gosh, congratulations. <laughs> so... 
you know, um, you know, we're, do. we're in the process of finishing due diligence. Now, all that being said, when you're selling for a fraction, not a multiple, it's a very different outcome, right? So I'm proud that we're getting validation that we built something of value yeah. and that our technology had had value that other companies want. Um, that's great. That's super exciting. I'm really like proud of that. I'm proud of our team for what they built, but it's not the same as the big splashy acquisition, you know, and my partner and I aren't going along with it, right? We are selling the tech. Okay. Got it. Yeah, we are selling the tech. We're we're doing consulting work to help on implementation, right? And so so that was one positive that came out of it. Is that we Yes. Can you share like the kind of company that's buying it or looking at it? Uh I won't yet. I won't okay. yet. I'll, I'll reach out to you guys when when we can, right? But that was definitely a positive that came out yeah. of it. Is that we we were able to access a wider range of buyers than we had been able to talk to when we were sort of behind the scenes. Which is so funny because sometimes <laughs> we'll hear like this was like something that I was like, I think it happens in late stage a lot where it's like a company like leak that they're thinking of raising yeah. at a certain value. And then it's like, oh, now that no, you know, people are looking. Yeah. You, you know, you didn't leak it. You just said it out loud. But that's an interesting yeah. strategy. Maybe one that's leverage. Thinking of. Yeah, it's leverage. <laughs> well, and it's like, yeah, like you're just like, OK, I guess if nobody wants this, we're going to walk away. Yeah. And then people are like, wait, 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 we want it. Yeah, right, right. So it's nice to be able to return some capital to investors. It's nice to be able to feel like there will be a future for the tech and, and for the, you know, yes. the mission is aligned as well, you know. So I think there's a lot that feels good about that. I think from an emotional and interpersonal standpoint, we saw just a huge amount of love and support, not just from our customers, but from, you know, people who had been watching for years. And I think that it can be really lonely when you're making these sorts of decisions. And so we we just saw an outpouring of people telling you that they're proud of you. And then yeah. it, that sounds like it might seem silly from strangers, but it's actually really meaningful to have people be like, it's amazing what you've done. And it's been a you know a pleasure to watch. Like that's incredibly meaningful for all founders, I think. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I, I'm not going to ask you to speak for all of them, but yeah. I would love to know how like the general vibe you were getting from founders who reached out to you. Were a lot of them in this crossroads or do you feel like it was more surprise, more yeah. what happened? You know, I'm guessing it was a little bit of everything, but anything kind of dominate or surprise you in the reaction? Yeah, there was a lot of surprise. But I think, again, it, it goes to show Catch's footprint publicly was larger than our business. <laughs> you know, like if you if you were to match, like if you were to say, like, how much revenue do you think that company has? We probably had less than most people thought. And so I think there was surprise in the sense that people were like, but you're so well known. Yeah, um, and yeah. it's like, those things aren't related. <laughs> Right. Like they're they're not say it louder <laughs> for any consumer company. They're ever. really not correlated <laughs> all that much. Right. And yeah, we've seen it some of the big explosions, right, of companies that just totally like implode. But I think that was surprised. I had someone reach out who I who I trust in, in the fintech industry and she said, Oh, you know, I did a bunch of consulting last year and like I I totally messed up on my taxes and I like really wish I had used your product and I was like yeah you and everybody else man like yeah seriously like <laughs> right everyone. and so like people started saying like oh your product is so valuable and I was like well not enough people used it so yeah. maybe there are some things that we missed right and that we didn't get right to get those hooks and those incentives right on the product side so yeah yeah but but in general it was like just massively supportive and I, I think anyone who didn't really feel supportive at least didn't reach out to us so I appreciate that we love that we love to hear that <laughs> You mentioned returning, being able to return some of the capital to investors. There was this conversation on Twitter a while ago. I don't know if you saw it. Actually, I think from a DoorDash executive who said, like, you know, he recommends that founders, if they're in this position, yeah. return capital to investors. So the next time they build, they can go back to that same investor. The idea being, if you're going to shut down, yeah. do so, you know, soon, fast and return money and make everyone kind of make people as whole as you can with the capital you have in your bank. And I'm 
since I have you, I'm curious what you think about that yeah. mindset. I, I know it's a little complicated. Yeah. Just in terms of like, no, no clear yes or no there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would say like, first of all, we haven't returned it yet. So our investors are still waiting, right? Like you have to finish the deal. You have yeah. to do all that, all that sort of stuff. So it can take some time if you're doing it the way we are. In terms of like, should you return capital that you raised? Of course, it depends. That's the answer. It depends. I think given how much capital was sort of like splashed around in 21, 22, early 22. Yeah. I'd say the main reason to return capital is if you're burned out. And if you don't think that you can do it, you should absolutely do that. I am not of the opinion that like, if it's not working, give the money back. I don't think that's what the venture model is for. Early stage investors should be investing in people. And if they invested in you and believe that you're the right person, like go prove it, right? Like that's great. But that burnout thing is in my mind, the sort of metric. If you are like, this has just run me through the ringer and I am like not able to build great teams, build great product. And like, I'm not able to do it. There is no shame in giving the money back. I think sometimes it's like the two sides of the battle are sort of like, should we, you know, just keep pivoting, keep pivoting, keep pivoting. Yeah. If you have the energy for that, but if you don't, it's nothing to be ashamed of and giving money back to investors in that capacity is an honorable and wonderful thing to do. But if you have ideas, if you have something that you're like, wait, I think there's something else. I don't think that it's necessarily appropriate to be like, perfect. Yeah. And if an investor gave you too much money, Maybe that's not on you as a founder. Yeah, right? I mean, well, let's let's end with ideas because super excited to hear that you're back to building already. I saw yeah. a Twitter poll where you were asking people, you know, what they think <laughs> about what you should be working on next. And majority said, yeah. get out of fintech. So I my know. first question is, <laughs> is your next company in fintech? What can you tell us about what you're building? I couldn't leave fintech. I love it way too much. <laughs> I, I found it, the the plurality response was get out, which I, I think... was crazy. If, if nothing else, that tells me that now is a better time than ever to build, right? And so I think there was a lot of hype about fintech for a long time. And it was a hard time to build because people were like, we're fintech. And you're like, you don't even know banking regulation or money movement or any of that sort of stuff. So I think it's an exciting time to build in fintech. So I am staying in fintech. Oh, yeah. And then the question is also like, where do you add the most value, right? Like the lessons that I've learned from Catch are exceptionally valuable to the right people at the right time in the right place, right? Like there are like a lot of companies that probably don't care what I know right now. And so I am staying early stage. I wouldn't be, you know, a huge benefit to a team of 75 people who's trying to like incrementally improve the process that they built that is, you know, massively beyond product market fit. So part of my superpower is being able to find that product market fit and and figure out what it looks like and what it doesn't. And knowing the failures that I had in that process is hopefully going to make the next effort happen faster, better, and and easier to everyone's success. And do you see yourself being the founder CEO? Do you want to go and be a CTO or, you know, chief product officer? I, well, I ha- so I have a CEO now. I'm I'm working for someone else. Okay. So don't tell him if that's my <laughs> if that's my path. Uh, You're like we're gonna pull another take over another catch card. <laughs> oh my god, that would be the most iconic career like habit to have. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna happen this time. But uh, I, I, you know, I don't. I, like I said, a CEO is just a different job. Yeah. It's different. It's it's not it's not better. It's different. And I don't know that it's the place that I add the most value. It may be again someday, but I don't know that right now that's where I can add the most value. So I think it right now my goal is to show the value that I can add. Like I'm not I'm early stage. So like there's no such thing as a C-level title. You yeah. know, if there's a handful of C-level titles early stage, like you've already messed up. So I have no title. <laughs> <laughs> my title is, you know, add value just like everyone else on the team because it's such a small team at this stage, yeah. right? So okay. I think that's kind of, we'll see how the company scales, but my goal is to build the title 
the title should follow the value, I guess is how I feel about it. Yeah, that's a whole another episode that we should definitely have you want to talk about. <laughs> Are you able to share where it is or when do you go public with the news? That's such a good question. I'm not going to say the company's name because we're we're working on a pretty big splash because the CEO is super impressive. And okay. he has not publicly announced what he's doing yet. Well, give us the news whenever you do. <laughs> so I, I will. Yeah, it'll, it will be announced. We're, we're working on the announcement plan right now. So we'll certainly reach out to you all when we get ready for that. But there is a lot of really good stuff happening in fintech right now, not just the company I'm at, but a lot of companies are really digging into the time that everyone else is fleeing. So I'm super pumped oh, yeah. to see what comes next. My colleague and equity co-host Alex wrote a piece today saying, quote, we're close to peak pessimism around fintech. And yeah. depending on how you read it, that's a good thing. And it sounds like yeah. it's a good thing for you. So I'm I'm it happy is. to hear that the tourists <laughs> are departing this crazy sector, which has had way too much drama recently. Totally. For sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to end with some lightning round questions, sure. if that works for you. Number one is if you weren't building in fintech or even in tech altogether, what would you be doing right now? I have two daughters under two years old. So if I was not in tech, I would probably be taking full-time care of them for a little bit. Um, I'm so grateful for childcare and the people who spend all their time doing it. But I think if I weren't in tech, I'd probably be spending more more mom time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, that's a great answer. I think we've gotten, I think that's the first answer we've gotten that said mom time. Usually it's like, I want to make ice cream. (laughs) Like That's so great. I mean, maybe I just haven't had enough time to think about it yet. I'm like, my brain is like, uh, I have a lot of diapers to change. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that answer. That is a great answer. Then the, the other two that I always love, I'll end with the positive, but what's the worst piece of career advice that you've ever received? Oh, yeah. So the worst piece of career advice I received was from a woman who was extremely well-intentioned in giving this advice. And I know where it came from, um, but she was you know, more senior in experience than I, I was at the time, maybe than I am now. But she told me that I was too emotional and not in a like a critical way, in a way of like, if you, she was sort of like, you know, hey, this is a world of men. And if you want to be effective in this world, you have to like tone down on the the feelings and the loudness and the, and all of that sort of stuff. And again, it was coming from a place of like, I want you to be successful and here's how you should do it. And that was how she had done it. Right. But I think that just has totally played backwards in my life. Right. Which is that like, Emotional is the wrong frame. It's passion. And and that really is it. That like I care about what I'm doing and I, you know, lead with vulnerability. And I think that's helped me build a team. That's helped me build a brand. That's helped me build, you know, everything that I've accomplished to date. And so for me, that was not a successful way. And it was partly because it just wasn't authentic to who I was. Mm-hmm. I think it's different for different people. Now, sure. if you don't feel comfortable being super vulnerable in public, don't be like, don't tell, <laughs> don't let someone tell you that that's who you need to be. But for me, like I found community when I was able to share and trying to like be afraid that other people would view that as emotional or like that a woman didn't belong. Like that just wasn't good advice for me. You know, I know the show isn't about me, but like that is definitely the worst advice I've ever gotten too. It was like, don't, it was literally like she said, don't share too much on Twitter because people will take advantage of it. And I I do think, I don't need to tell you this, but like female entrepreneurs, female journalists will get targeted harassment. So I'm not like stupid about it. I don't tweet my location all the time. Your phone number. Yeah, exactly. But maybe sharing like this essay I wrote about my mom or like this dish that I made that reminds me of my nanny. Like those are things that like humanize us as people. And yeah, yeah, it's such a difficult piece of advice because there is some like, I guess, truth to only the harassment side. But I don't know. And it's well-intentioned. It's usually not coming from someone being like, you're bad. It's It's like, hey, I've gone through this ringer and I don't want you to face the same thing. But it just, I don't, I don't think it works for everyone and it definitely didn't work for me. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that. I think that's a really important thing for people to hear and, you know, draw their own lines around 
And we'll end with, you know, the best piece of career advice that you've ever gotten. So I think it came from my mom. And my mom didn't get a college degree. She took a lot of years off to raise us when when I was little. She was an office manager, you know, so in most places, like the bottom of the totem pole at the company she worked at. But the advice that she gave me was, you know, just add value, like add value, find ways to add value. And like, you're never going to be out of a job for long. And like, you're always going to find that you're able to like, feel good about yourself and feel good about the things that you accomplish. And I feel like, you know, the more I've achieved and the more I've accomplished, the more I still like look back at that piece of advice. And it's like, yeah, just like look for that place to add value and like, don't expect anyone else to like tell you what to do all the time. Just like use your eyes and figure out what needs to be done and then do it. And I, I think that is probably the best career advice, even from the the billionaires and the VCs and whatever. Yes. It's like, it's just very simple and, and very easy to have an impact with. Oh, we love a clarifying one-liner to end the show. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Kristen. People are definitely going to want to follow you if they aren't already. Tell people where they can find you on the internet these days. Yeah, I guess the only place I'm on the internet right now is Twitter. So it's at FinTech Kristen. Great and username, by the way. What the heck? <laughs> it used, okay, so that's funny because it used to be at Catch Kristen. Ah. And I had to just change it because I was like, oh, man, it was like, it was a very painful oh, no. part of the shutdown process. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> Changing the Twitter handle, right? Totally. Um, so I'm I'm at FinTech Kristen, Kristen with an E, you'll find me there um, and we'll be we'll certainly be announcing the new stuff I'm working on and and I'll uh, make sure TechCrunch gets the news first. <laughs> yes, okay. Well, thank you and everyone, you can find me on the socials at nmask underscore on Twitter and at Natasha the reporter on Instagram. And other than that, we'll be back on Friday with our regularly programmed show and we will have some news. So make sure you listen to the whole show and you'll get the big exciting update and I will talk to you then. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week. <laughs>